This is embarrassing, actually. All right. Because I'm on the advisory board of Montrose Lane. Yeah. <laughs> We're a shareholder and all. Yeah. What the hell does Novi Labs do? Yeah. Well, uh, great question. Great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going to be edgy. I'm going to call all the portfolio yeah. companies in yeah. to figure this out. Yeah. So really, we're a data analytics company focused on unconventionals and lower 48. Um, we have two main business lines. Uh, one is that we have machine learning based forecasting tools for operators to design their developments. So you know, how many wells should I drill in this section in Martin County? Should I increase my completion design? Like what's the optimal for rate of return or maximize your MPV or whatever it happens to be that they're looking at? And then second- Is that we, like Aries on steroids? I mean, dummy it down for the finance yes, guy. Yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah, so, you know, Aries, you might group your wells together, you know, fit some curves to it. That's all done by a, a human reservoir engineer. And they are um, subject to different biases. They can only hold a few things in their brain at once. You know, they worked in private equity. Yeah. <laughs> their deals were doing well. That, that, yeah. That's how it always yeah. came. In. Yeah, a B factor of three. I don't think that actually exists, <laughs> but okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the machine learning model, it can look across the entire basin for analogs. It can be very um, deliberate in analyzing all these different factors. And at the end of the day, what that means is you get a more accurate forecast and a better decision. So, you know, maybe your reservoir engineer doing it by hand says, hey, we need to pump 2,900 pounds per foot. Um, but in reality, you're overcapitalizing your well and you're, you know, leaving a million dollars on the table just by, um, by, by putting all that down hole. So um, the model can help you identify places to um, get better economics out of um, your developments. Because, you know, it felt like um, towards the last, so I get booted, call it April 2020. Yeah. So I want to say maybe as early as 2016, 2017, yeah. we were really doing a lot of that mechanically by hand of, okay, let's drill a well and let's pump, you know, two-thirds of the propping or whatever and we were trying to be very methodical and testing every variable individually and what we always found would happen is okay we all agree we're just going to test the sand on this one and inevitably the ops engineer to save some money would also do something else and we'd be like now we don't know what it means yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that's exactly right plus you know if you drill six wells on a pad the four interior wells their their production might go up or down 20% just for no reason, even if you do the exact same thing, right? right? So with all of that and all of the craziness on, you know, hey, they decided to cut a stage or whatever it is, by looking across many different examples, you can get a better answer for whatever you're trying to look at rather than just, you know, putting all your faith on one science pad for your cluster design or whatever it is. Yeah. And so last thing while we're, we're on Novi Labs, if I'm a customer hmm. 
is it a SaaS model? I'm buying software and data from you. How does that work? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a SaaS model. Usually one or three year deals. Um, we um, will, you know, depending on the size of the company and how many licenses you need, um, you know, things like that, we'll scale the price up or down. Um, yeah, gotcha. all the data is included along with that. Gotcha. And uh, I have one of the greatest data stories of all time. <laughs> and the person, the person who did this uh, shall remain nameless, Ryan Rice. Supposedly, supposedly, don't know this to be true, Toby marches down the hall uh-huh. at Rice Energy and goes, you know, Ryan, we've got four different data sets. Uh, pick one. I'm not spending a million bucks on data. Just pick one and and let's go with it. The next board meeting, Ryan is passing out the board books and Toby notices that Ryan is passing out four different books. Uh-huh. They're looking at an acquisition or a development pro- uh, program or whatever. Four different books. Toby goes, hey, what's the deal with the four books? Well, I have four different data sets right now. We're going to look at each one, and I just want you to tell me which data set I need to get rid of. By the way, the results vary by 50% across <laughs> all four data sets. I believe it, yeah. Is that true about data, and how do y'all deal with that? Yes, it's definitely true about data, although it does vary depending on which state you're in. Um, okay. So if you're in North Dakota and you look at a deal and you're using four different data sets, you're, you're not going to have a 50% discrepancy in the valuation. But if you're in Texas or West Virginia or Pennsylvania, you might. And the biggest driver of that, um, especially in the Texas Permian or the Eagleford, is the production data is at, for the state, is reported at the lease level rather than at the well level. So let's say you're evaluating a, a deal in um, Howard County and the operators have been, you know, the operator in the area that you're looking at has been drilling 20 wells a section. And you think, hey, I think there's potential here in the Wolf Camp B that's maybe not really tapped so far. And we can add in an extra four wells um, to, to their developments. Um, you're you're only you're using guesstimated production for what the Wolf Camp D does Wolf Camp B does in that area because um, all you know is how much the whole lease produces. So companies like Novi will have to come up with an estimation for how much of the whole lease level production um, belongs to each of the individual wells. So we spend a lot of time on that, and we've also, and this is something pretty unique, gone out to minerals companies and operators and started licensing their well level data directly. So rather than having to deal with like these guesstimations, you get, you know, the ground truth, like straight from the source, basically. So when I would sit there and either my guys or portfolio company would CEO would pick up the phone and call me and say, we have to buy this 1% interest in this area. They weren't bullshitting me. They were doing it because they wanted actual data. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Because if you're getting that data from your, you know, your check stubs or working interest data share, you know, you you actually know how much the wells are producing, which is like extremely valuable to know. Yeah, we used used to do that. And where it it really came, where it really mattered was when you could also get the completion card and know exactly what completion recipe they used. And you could start differentiating by wells on that. That actually really mattered. Yeah, exactly. And in in Texas, 
for the most part, you don't know how many stages they pump. Right. They, you don't you don't have any idea about the clusters, um, and that can have a big impact on the performance as well. Um, and that's another thing we've we've um, and maybe you heard about this from the Montrose guys, but we run this Novi Data Network that allows operators to share their stage data and cluster data for training models. So you know maybe you're operating in in Reeves County or midland county or whatever and you've only tried two different stage lengths and you're like well what happens if we do shorter stages or longer stages like who knows but um you pull all your data with other operators who've tried other things and now the model can tell you oh yeah you can increase production five percent if you you know shorten your stages by 75 feet or whatever i've got friends that are software engineers yeah that i mean periodically call and go okay let me get this straight (laughs) You guys go out and spend a quarter of a billion dollars on two sections of land and drill 24 wells and you turn it all on and you don't know if you're going to make money or not make money and you do that without calling the guy next door. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We might give away a secret. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, exactly. I actually, no, I actually love to hear the, the it's not open source, but to some degree. Yeah open source doing it because i I mean we we all have that deal that we made gazillion dollars on because we had some information and we've given it back 10 times by not sharing and it's ridiculous yeah and i think what everyone is realizing is we're not in this um you know offshore lease sale mode where the value of the acreage can swing 100x based on some well results. And so you need to be secret agents with super crazy protocols with all your data. And in fact, by collaborating more and having more openness, the rising tide can lift all boats and everyone in the area can have improved performance and returns and and all that. So this is a weird juxtaposition, but it just kind of came to me on this. Sorry, I have ADD. Go for it. Whatever. You're significantly younger than I am. Do you think part of the reason we have such trouble attracting young people is because we're so close-minded and not... I mean, it feels like this is going to be a little derogatory. I don't mean it, but... If you grew up with participation trophies and you're not sharing, <laughs> do you really want to go hang out with these guys? Oh man, is there well, any truth to that? Maybe I don't. That's a good question, but I, honestly, I think that the more of the younger generation, you know, my cohort graduating in you know the mid 2010s, and then folks who are graduating over the next 10 years, I think it's more about the volatility of the job market and just worrying about the future of oil and gas. Like even if it's a person who isn't immediately like throwing up in their mouth at the thought of working in an oil and gas company because that is a huge portion of it. And I'll go talk to undergrads at UT, you know, geology students, and they'll just be like, I'm not working in oil and gas. My three kids. My three kids live the greatest. My three kids are going to London for Christmas. Yeah. Should we ban oil and gas? Oh, yes, Dad. It's so evil. Yeah. 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 What's fueling the plane on their way over (laughs) there? You want to row your way? Yeah. Exactly. You're going to be warm in that polyester coat. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. You just gave a really cool speech about the DJ Basin. Yes. What did you say in it? Because it was cool. I've read the slides. I don't want to give spoiler alert. I'll let you deliver it, but <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Yeah, So I, I was recently at the Society of Petroleum Engineers Denver chapter, which shout out to SPE, you know, great organization, still going, still going strong. 
Um, but if you look across all the major shale plays here in the United States, and let's focus on the oil plays, you know, Permian, Eagleford, Williston, Anadarko, DJ, Crowder River even, throw it in there. Um, almost all of those plays have had declining well productivity over the last couple of years. Yeah. So a Permian well that was drilled in 2020 or 2021 was 10% more productive than the wells that are being drilled over the last 12 months. And I've got a theory on that, but we'll, yeah, we'll, when we get up. to the yeah. period, we'll, yeah. we'll put a, uh, put a bow on that one. Yeah. And, and, um, if you look at, that's pretty consistent across the different basins with the exception of the DJ, which has had the opposite trend where it has gone up 10% over the last couple of years. And so we, Obviously, this is interesting. It's an anomaly in the data. Things are right. breaking on breaking trend. And there's a couple things going on in the DJ that I think are interesting and are maybe things to think about for other basins. Uh, but um, one of them is that the basin is consolidating. So 75% of production now is Oxy, Chevron, and Civitas. You know, th just three operators, right? right? And it's by far the most concentrated of the major shale plays. So will a basin which has fewer, larger operators have different production? Maybe. The other thing is it's a challenging surface environment. Getting permits is tough. You're drilling in the suburbs. You know, it's it's challenging from a lot of reasons. You have the political uncertainty of will right. the next election remove your ability to, you know, drill, drill some wells. Um, and so what we did is we took our machine learning models and we ran them on um, the DJ Basin to sort of try and see if we could figure out like what is driving this production increase, productivity increase, and can we tie that back to any of the circumstances that are in that basin? And really what we found is kind of a, a three-pronged recipe for how the operators there are increasing the performance. And it's not by focusing on better quality rock. Um, it's the biggest driver is actually pumping more fluid in their completions jobs. Okay. So they have gone from pumping an average of 25 barrels a foot up to an average of 40 barrels a foot in just a couple of years, which is a tremendous increase. Right. So they had been stable for years and years and years. And um, the operators kind of figured out that this was a big deal. And our models think that you can still get a lot more oil for a 40 barrel a foot job compared to a 25. And uh, now 40 barrels a foot would be more like a Permian size job um, than where the DJ used to be. So that's that's like the biggest difference, but they're also drilling longer laterals and they're being more aggressive than um, the Permian players. They're drilling more, you know, three, two and a half to three plus mile laterals. And then they're doing wider spacing. So it's this interesting recipe where you pump a bigger job, you widen out your spacing, you drill longer laterals, and that's unlocking this nice productivity gain there, which I think like between the pressure on the operators to get the best out of what they have and a little bit of the you know longer term planning focus that some of these bigger operators have, clearly they're in the play to stay um, is is why we're seeing these gains affected there to, compared to other basins. Okay, let's let's break this down. So, number one question, and it's going to be they're going to be all over the place. Sorry about <laughs> that. How are we defining better rock? What what metrics are you using to define rock? Yeah. So, we are using 
are machine learning models taking in rock properties like TOC, uh, water saturation, um, thickness, depth, the clay content of the rock, um, and the models can learn from that how those different factors drive the performance. So our models can come up with really accurate maps of rock quality that are done in a data-driven way. Um, so um, it, it tends to be very robust and predictive, and it, you're not like assuming, like, I need to have 3.5% TOC because a lot of that stuff breaks down and when you actually get onto the ground. So right. the models basically learn, hey, the rock quality is better here, it's worse here, this area is more gas prone, this area is more water prone, et cetera, et cetera. So thinking that one through, um, and I know we're talking about a whole base and multiple formations, yep. so could be, depends, could be your answer. Do you find in the DJ basin that the, the, the metrics that matter or the variables that matter have a tendency to be linear because one of the things we got tripped up on is we actually found some plays where it was binary. Mm. You needed X amount. You needed 25 feet. You needed X yeah. amount of TOC, whatever. And you had a great well if you had less than that. The, the analogy I always give is you look at offensive linemen in the NFL and it's 280 pounds. There is not <laughs> yeah. you know, very rare yeah. that you find a, a a great offensive lineman less than 280 pounds, but yeah. it's not linear. 330 pounds is not better exactly. than 290. Yeah. It's more binary. What does the rock look like in the DJ? Yeah, we we see these nonlinear relationships all the time, um, and usually we'll find something like let's say depth is depth might be linear. Like you might get more like more productivity the deeper you are, and that might be. Be More very pressure. Linear. Look More, at that. Exactly. Yeah. I know. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. yeah thank, wow. thank you, machine learning model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even uh, the finance guy got that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but other things, like a lot of times, the clay volume. You know, maybe it doesn't matter at all until you get above twenty-five percent clay. Like that'd be a very yeah. common thing. We're having five percent or fifteen percent, no difference. You know, going over that threshold, then it starts to degrade. Yeah. Um, same thing with TOC. A lot of times, we'll see a similar, you know, a similar kind of step change. Um, or water saturation. Another theory on the uh, on the DJ, because of the regulatory environment, because of uh, man-made stuff up above the ground, did and I don't even know how we would measure this, but did we drill more parent-type wells because of surface? And that just explains why things are better. Because I think a lot of our problem when we get to the Permian and some other basins is we mm. fucked up parent-child. Yeah. I mean, we just did. We, yeah. we, as we were discussing earlier, we didn't share notes and we messed that up. Yeah. We, well, um, we do see that the DJ compared to the Permian has less impact from parent-child relations. Like, definitely. Okay. Um, and... I I don't know. I'll have to go back and check the data. I don't know how much that is just like the nature of the play versus operator design choices and how they actually develop the units. Um, but it's much less of an impact up in the DJ um, compared to the Permian. And we see the bigger impact from the recent impact is due to like wider lateral spacing between wells and their their neighbors, either wine racked above them or you know in the in the same subzone. 
you know, and I wonder if that's not driven by, uh, at least in part by, you know, in Colorado, it felt like you could just get a hundred thousand acres and, you know, you have these big federal tracks yep. and you could go, wow, this is great. And I always thought that's why Denver was so gentlemanly because if you have a hundred thousand acres, I'd like a piece sure. of your deal. Sure. Yeah. You can have 20,000 acres Yeah, where in Oklahoma and parts of the Permian, Oh my God, that three acres are mine, you know, and they fight about it. And, you know, you get the concentration of ownership, which led to tighter spacing, et cetera. Yeah. I wonder if there's any of that going on. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think the, um, the other component of that is there's probably more pressure to build out contiguous blocks just because of how surface constrained it is. So maybe maybe operators are more willing to trade acreage so that they can both drill ten thousand foot wells. This is I'm just arm waving. Yeah, here. no, but, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, and I think up in you, you know. Um, this is also outside of my bailiwick here, but up in Canada where you have other superficial issues for other, like more of environmental regulations and things like that, you probably see similar um, similar things going on. This used to always be our deal. It took us a while. If you called for references on anyone in Denver, you always got 10 out of 10. Uh-huh. Everybody was fine. <laughs> and then you'd get in there and you go, oh my God, this guy's an idiot or yeah, whatever yeah. and all this. Where Oklahoma... The best you could do is seven good references out of yeah. 10. And when you trace down the three or more bad references, it was always because somebody force pooled somebody. Yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. And nothing to do with quality of human. It was just, yeah. it's just, the, that's great. Yeah. It's, it's the Game of Thrones they play in, in Oklahoma. Yeah. It's yeah. a different world out there. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, what else do we know about? the DJ that might be explaining this. I mean, this is going to pain me to say it, but I'll go ahead and say it. So Chevron, a major is actually pretty good at drilling. I mean, <laughs> is that, is that, is that what we're, is that what we're actually saying? Yeah, potentially. Yes. I mean, I think when we have been looking at this, not just in the DJ, but around the country, a lot of the, a lot of the big dogs are drilling pretty productive wells. And I think they, they probably suffer more on their cost models, but they spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out the right design for, yeah. for their wells. And I think for, you know, the the key question I have about whether or not the, you know, DJ Renaissance can repeat in the Permian as Exxon takes it all over or, you know, whoever takes it all over is, is there a, you know, a nickel line on the sidewalk in the case of operators under completing their wells, you know, or have collectively the hundreds of operators out there kind of already figured out what you need to do. Yeah. Because yeah. that's basically you've played into something when we start talking about the Permian that I'll talk about. It, the, yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think you really are just going to have three or four operators in DHJ because you have to have an oligopoly to deal with the government. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's really the way it's, um, it's going to operate. The The other thing that we've got to give the DJ credit for, too, is when it comes to carbon emissions, methane emissions, and all that, Yeah, better than other basins, too. Yeah, definitely shout out to them for that. You know, we all, like, I don't want to see our precious North American resource being flared, you know, more than anybody else, you know, acknowledging that wells need to be economic, but I'd, I'd rather capture that and use it for making plastics, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
that's, that's, <laughs> no, that's, uh, that, that's exactly right. The um, part of that speech, as I was flipping through slides, you did talk about machine learning, mm -hmm. to, or you talked about the, the AI learnings, kind of anything pop out at the DJ that, that we haven't talked about. Yeah, I, th I, th I think we hit most of the major things, but the other slightly unique thing going on there is just how um, the lateral length efficiency there seems to be better than another place. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what the exact mechanism is that's driving that, but I think that's part of what has enabled the productivity for those long laterals is just for whatever reservoir reason, it works pretty well. Maybe it's something about the fluid content or, you know, who knows, but it seems to look better than the Permian um, for, you know, a 15K versus a 10K versus a 5K. Yeah. Um, so one last question on the DJ before we leave. Anything out there lurking as potentially a step change function up or... We, this is as good as it's going to get. I mean, we didn't like just looking through the different trends that the model has seen, like other than finishing up the transition to higher fluid intensities. I don't think there's anything else that's like at least laying around in the data from what we have, but that doesn't mean that there's not other things out there that we just don't really have data for. You know, data analytics is fantastic, but it is backwards looking by its nature. So, right. you know. Um, who knows what, all, what other things people might discover out there, you know, I, like for instance, they tend to be, over the past couple of years, operators have been drilling more outside of the Wattenberg core, you know, and they've been finding nice little productive pockets in other parts of the play. Um, I will say this one thing, our models, this is, this is a fun little side. This is the Chuck Yates needs a needs a job podcast aside, but the rock underneath Denver would be incredibly productive. Um, if we could actually drill it, um, it's. It, yeah, it looks like as good as anything else in the rest of the play. If but, we if we yeah. could disguise it as a dispensary, <laughs> yeah. we'd be able to drill anywhere. Yeah, in, uh, that's in downtown. Yeah, Denver. that's 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 one of those things. Yeah, put it in, put it in, put it behind the dispensary. Uh, yeah, Den the DJ, the Niobrara under Denver, the Marcellus under Pittsburgh. There's a few places out there where there's like really productive rock, which is just you know, fails under the surface condition. So, you know, World War Three kicks up and we need some extra resource. You know, you can go into a parking lot in Coors Field and get some nice, uh, nice uh, well, the Illuminati, The Illuminati is underneath the airport there, right? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that the story? So they, yeah. they're, they're near the resource. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, smart lizards, you know. There was a, there was a, I'm blanking on the name of the company. The CEO's name was Dick Lewis. Great guy. And he told the story of leasing the airport. Mm -hmm. um, and so they basically go out to bid and he's studying it and it's trouble getting uh, data from the city and it's hard and all. And kind of his people have said it finally, you know, 20 minutes before it's due, he said, we can't figure this out. Let's just bid $10 an acre. So they bid $10 an acre. Three months later, they get the call back, more data, sharpen your pencil. This goes on for 18 months. Ugh. And finally, I think $15 an acre he leases. Turns out for 18 months, they were the only ones that had bid. <laughs> so the government continued through this process. That's great. Of, yeah. uh, of all this. Hey, uh, that got that extra $5 an acre. You know? Yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. So, all right. Jump to the Permian. Let's do What's it. What's going on there? Well, the, you know, the 
as I mentioned for the context for the DJ, productivity in the Permian has been dropping for a couple of years. And this is enough that like the Wall Street Journal runs cover stories right, on it. Right. You know, my, mom, my mom yeah. notices yeah. that. Like yeah. when my dad starts texting me about stuff, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's notable, newsworthy, right? But um, this has obviously caused some consternation because the Permian produces 5 million barrels a day and the rest of U.S. shale produces a little over three. You know, yeah. it's more than the DJ, the Bakken, the Eagleford, the Anadarko, et cetera, all combined together, right? right. So it's, Permian is king. We all know that. But so if, if, the, if the well's productivity is dropping, that has you worry. And, you know, what we, when this was happening and people were starting to wrap their heads around it, the big concern was inventory exhaustion. You right. know, like, have we drilled out the good stuff? Right. It's like, is the Permian dead? Yeah. And we we have spent a lot of time looking at this recently. Um, and um, what we are seeing is that the 2022, 2023 wells, they actually look just as good or better than 2018 or 2019. And I think a lot of the drop that we've seen over the past two years there, you know, 10% or so, is because operators really high-graded their inventory during the low-price regime of COVID and its aftermath. Okay. So they stopped drilling the Tier 3 stuff. It wasn't a question of like running out of Tier 1. It was more, you know, they stopped drilling Tier 3, and then when they added it back into their portfolio in 2022, when we had that big recovery and into 2023, you know, look, lo and behold, production drops back to where it was. Right. Um, which is not to say that the future inventory looks a little worse than what's already been drilled, but it is to say that like this past couple of years drop isn't, I would say, a huge red flag, you know, put up the smoke flare, you know, call up the Saudis and ask them to pump more. It's more just like a, an artifact of the operator behavior during COVID time. Okay. So here's my conspiracy theory tinfoil hat on Love the Permian. It. Yeah. So I'll kind of make up all these numbers because I can't remember. It's been a while, and plus I don't have a job anymore, so hey, I don't have not? to. I don't have to be right. Yeah. Um, let's go horizontal drilling. We start in the Permian, call it twelve, thirteen, something sure. like that. Boom! Every year we're up forty percent in terms of well productivity, right? Um. Then we get to call it 17 and 18, and maybe we're up 15 to 20%. So mm -hmm. in, in Biden's world, that's inflation de decreasing, right? Sure. But uh, no, but anyway, and so we still see kind of up to the right, although with, with slower growth up, and now we're kind of bending back down 10%. Mm -hmm. What I think happened is call it until 2017 you have five guys in a rusty pickup truck for the most part drilling that's cane back companies ngp back companies the entrepreneurial companies yeah generally drilling parent type wells generally the smaller companies are a lot better at optimizing production rates yes yeah. we're gonna flip right we want as high production rates possible so we have that the best acreage in the Permian, Exxon and Chevron sitting there, and they're not doing diddly squat. So they pick it up in 17 and 18 with the best practices. Because I think if you took out the Exxon and Chevron wells, 
drilled in 17 and 18, instead of being up 15 to 20%, it's like down 3%. Yeah. So you already saw the breakover. It's masked somewhat by Exxon and Chevron being late to the game. Am I yeah. making that up or is there possibly some truth to that? I think there might be some truth to that. Um, like, in, in addition to just finding that better quality rock as the larger companies start to move more on their positions, we also see that they're drilling longer laterals. You know, two guys in a truck might not have bothered to, you know, they, hey, they're going to flip it anyways. Like, who needs right. to lease this thing up to fit a three-mile lateral or whatever yeah. it is? And then it does seem like the operators have been getting smarter about their parent-child relationships, and our models are showing, like, less impact from that, like, in the past couple of years compared to before that. Yeah, because um, we, we mess that, mess yeah. that up early on. Just the whole thing of, gosh, we can't share information with anyone. Uh, but uh, I bet if you go back and run your models yeah. and you tag out Exxon and Chevron, go look yeah. at that. Because yeah. I think you're going to see that it, it actually flattened out early. Yeah. And so, so this decline is to be expected. The reason it kept going was just better rock, best practices. I'll, I'll take a look. Yeah. There you go. Good, Good theory. If yeah. there if if there's nothing to that, don't mention that's it not ever even, again. That's not even that much of a tinfoil hat. That's like a that's just a normal beanie right there. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's just a dude paid who paid yeah. attention. Come on, give me some beauty Back. gate conspiracy theories, you know, for the Permian. That's a real conspiracy yeah. theory. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> we could sit around and say, okay, who's yeah. going to buy Endeavor? Yeah, yeah well, sure. So there we yeah. go. Um, so that so that's interesting because if I'm right about my theory of Exxon Chevron getting there late, that actually pertends to a steeper drop possibly uh, than maybe what your models are looking at. Mm -hmm. um, again, how do you see the, how, how is your model showing the, the, the decline going forward? Because you said it was just a, a bit of high grading, drilling during COVID, so 10% downs. To be expected, are y'all seeing more flattish, or are we up against the brick wall? Uh, we show more flattish. Um, brick wall would be a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, most of these. Um, like I was just looking at the numbers for the Midland earlier today, and um, most, like most of the operators, especially the large ones, have um, somewhere between like four and six years of their better stuff remaining, and then you know another six years of tier three tier four whatever you want to call right. it um so i think i think there's like a you know there's there's time left to run with stuff kind of holding steady yeah gotcha gotcha so what other learnings and what else do we need to know about the permian uh yeah so the permian um which but by the way yeah i mean exxon buying pioneer the press conference sounded like you know, a Diamondback acquisition from 2017. Longer letters, better completions. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna double the, we're yeah. gonna double the amount of yeah. reserves. I'm like, going what? <laughs> yeah, here's not that bad. Come yeah, on. no, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're an excellent operator. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I do think like there is remaining potential for longer and longer laterals. I mean, especially like the more you can eliminate anything short of 12,000 feet. You know, you, there's still like a lot of meat left on the bone there. Um, I think. It remains to be seen on whether or not there's some completion special sauce or EOR or some new method that will like unlock a step change in productivity. Like we'll see whether that happens. But I think 
the, the more interesting thing right now is the emergence of all these secondary targets, tertiary targets, whatever you want to call them across the Permian, and like operators in like operators in the Midland are back to drilling thirty plus wells in a in a section. You know, oh, wow. the, like the cube is back, baby. You know? <laughs> nice. It's it's uh, and and the way that they're doing it, Chuck, is by spreading that across um, more zones. So rather than trying to drill, um, you know, that many wells just in your Wolf Campaign, your Lower Sprayberry, or whatever it is, they're adding in Upper Sprayberry, Middle Sprayberry, Joe Mill. Dean, Wolf Camp C, Wolf Camp D, you know, they're maybe maybe staggering some wells where they can in different parts of the lower sprayberry. So uh, operators are like really taking the original like cube gospel to heart in doing these very complex three-dimensional developments. And so we're seeing, I think that's part of the reason why parent-child is having a little bit less effect over the past couple of years, but that's also why you're seeing like that's significant density. And just to give you some numbers here, in the Midland Basin and in the Delaware Basin, if you add up these secondary zones, like Upper Sprayberry, Wolf Camp D, um, Dean, like those zones produce more than the Powder River Basin. You know, yeah. they're like 350, 400,000 barrels a day. You know, it's it's like the scraps from the King's Table are a great way to make a, a nice meal. You know, right. so- the that's I think the interesting thing about the Permian and, and why I'm a little more bullish on it to you know plateau for a, a long period of time is just you know the, the sheer amount of like additional data that or not additional the additional uh, zones that are out there like big Barnett big Barnett piece in Forbes or whatever uh, earlier today operators are out there drilling both super deep Barnett wells and finding a lot of oil actually not just gas in in the Permian so, yeah. And, you know, I always come back to, I mean, what are we getting? 8% of the oil in place? Yeah. yeah. 10% is amazing if we if we get that. So, I mean, there's a lot of oil left down there. For sure. Yeah. And I remember, you know, one of um, some of the uh, more grizzled old geologists at ConocoPhillips back when I was there would always say, you know, hey, 20 years ago, we knew the resource was out there for... A few different things. There was oil in the shales. There was methane hydrates. Um, there was immature hydrocarbons, like in like in Utah. And like now we figured out how to produce uh, oil for shales. But there's still, to your point, ninety percent of that resource is still there, you know, or more. So if 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 ever anybody can figure out how to improve that recovery factor, especially. Um, um, you know, secondary or tertiary recovery, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's you know, a lot of hydrocarbon left to be produced. One of my largest LPs became my largest LP because we were talking and, and they just said, hey, you know, I just don't get this. I mean, you drill down and you drain a pool and then it's gone. And I go, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. And I went to the whiteboard and I drew an upside down triangle. Hmm. And then I drew oil price up along the side. And I uh -huh. said, the higher the oil price, 
does two things. One, it gives me an incentive to go figure out how to make this stuff work. Mm -hmm. And it gives me the money to invest, to do R&D, to figure out how these two things work. So I go, we will never, ever run out of oil. Just, I can tell you how much oil is out there and how much is economic. You tell me what the price is going to be. And a light went off and the guy's like, oh, okay. And, And that's why he invested with us. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just a matter of dollar oil. Yeah, we're exactly. gonna get a lot more of that oil yeah. out of place. Yeah, I mean, there's like a trillion barrels of oil lying on the surface in Utah. That you just go mine and you go put it in an oven, and it'll come out of the rocks. You know, right? It's just you need it to be two hundred dollars to make it that economic. Um, you know, and there's just all sorts of stuff like that out there that, with the right price, you can make it work. You know. So let's talk real rock now. Okay, like, like super rock, vaca muerta. <laughs> yes. So I'm excited. Yeah. We've got our libertarian dude. Yeah. I'm, I'm bummed out though because here's what's going to happen. He doesn't have any control of the legislative yeah. branch of government there. So he's going to yeah. get tagged with all the failure, even though none of his policies will be put in place. Sure. But if for some reason his policies get in place and we have this libertarian mecca, tell us about that play. Because I believe we talked about this on BDE the other day. Largest number of unconventional wells outside the United States? And is- Canada. And Canada. Yeah. And Canada. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. They're the, they're the 50, I, I am, 51st yeah. state. Yeah, 51st state. To, yeah. Alberta, 52 BC. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm all about a little optimism bubble for, for Argentina. Like, let's do it. Um, I, the amazing thing for the Vaca Muerta is the recent wells in the oil window are around 30% more productive than the Permian. You know, it's, the wells are incredible. And on top of that, the wells and the gas window are that much more productive than Appalachia. So imagine having a super Marcellus and a super Wolf Camp in the same basin, you know? Yeah. It's extraordinary. And this aerial extent of the basin is bigger than the Permian. Um, or the Eagleford, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's not quite as not quite as stacked as the Permian, but it does have uh, many different benches, lots of different tight opportunities, and sandstones and siltstones like, in addition to the the proper shale plays. Um, so I think the basin has almost unlimited potential. It's a question of how scared are operators that they'll get nationalized, <laughs> which. Right. Which has happened before. Um, so, so my my uh, prescription yeah. is so bad on my eyes that it's uh-huh. illegal for me to get LASIK in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> now, my eye doctor, who's been my eye doctor for forty years, has said I've seen enough data out of Europe with people with your prescription. I'm comfortable if you want to get LASIK. And I go, really? I got to fly to Europe? And he goes, no, 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 no. We just go down to Mexico <laughs> and right across the border, we have an office Amazing. and you go get LASIK done and it'll be my partner. He flies down with you from Houston and we get it done. And he goes, you want to do it? And I said, no way. And he goes, what are you talking about? I go, imagine me starting the sentence. I got my eyes cut on in Mexico and now I can't see. I mean, who, who doesn't say no shit to that, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. yes, Argentina. So yeah, there's yeah. political risk. A little political risk. Um, costs have been historically higher there. Although I think from what I've been seeing in IRDEX is they've been coming down quite a bit, which um, is good news for obviously the economics of those wells. Um, but then you have issues around offtake, especially for, especially for the gas. 
I've I've heard the the pipeline situation regulatory wise is just a mess and yeah and it's luck. but it's 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 one of those things that if you can figure it out you can power Buenos Aires you can you can power Chile you can power Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo on clean gas from you know that southern cone just coming from the Vaca Muerta if you just put in the pipes like not to mention LNG you know cool yeah yeah no I, again it's one of those things that go raise a big huge fund we're gonna invest there we lose all our money when it gets nationalized yeah duh should have uh thought it but uh that'll be interesting to watch because i mean he's talking a good game he's talking about we're gonna sell you know we're gonna sell this off and uh you know we're gonna we're gonna free up drilling so that'll be uh that'll be interesting yeah i, I really hope I really hope uh, he's able to be successful with all that because the potential's there. And I mean, that's the key. That's the key basin. But there's other interesting basins there. There's, you know, offshore is also interesting there. After all this stuff in Namibia coming up, you know, it's uh, I don't know if you've been following that, but there's billion barrel discoveries going on in Namibia, and you know, what's right across the conjugate margin. What used to be connected to Namibia is offshore Argentina, offshore Uruguay. Like it's it's. It's all that like that whole trend like of South of Southern Africa going from South Africa up to Namibia used to be connected to that eastern part of Southern South America. So I mean, I I, I, lo- I, I love our analogy yeah. is literally in a different hemisphere. <laughs> is that a different different other other side of the world? Yeah, here's our analogy. Hey, this is thinking like a geologist, you know? I I used used to be scared two offsets away. That's how old I am in my career. Yeah, Yeah, we can't move over there. Yeah. Well, you know, Guyana used to be offshore, like, you know, used to be the same geology as like offshore Ghana um, and those where you had all those initial discoveries in in that kind of uh, that that uh, that coast of Africa, West Nigeria. So that was a lot of the reason for them to go explore in Guyana was was knowing that 200 million years ago, they. They were in the same place. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Crazy. There's something going on in the Uinta? I haven't heard about oh, yeah. this. Yeah. What's well, going on? I love the Uinta. It's a it's an incredible basin. So is that the waxy crew? It's waxy, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here's I'll I'll give you the good news and the bad news. So right. good news, the wells are as productive as the Permian. Um, okay. and if you get the crude to market because it's waxy and can be more easily turned into lubricants and other like higher value added petrochemicals, you, you actually get a positive differential relative to, um, you know, WTI. Uh, so, um, and it has, um, in addition to just really productive wells, it has stacked pay. So it's, it's, you know, not just one zone. There's a number of zones to target there. Um, it has a pretty small footprint. So. Like it's not going to be another, you know, it's not, it's never going to produce 5 million barrels a day, but it's been like going up like crazy. I think the unconventionals there are now through a hundred thousand barrels a day. Um, and it's not like, it's not that, you know, there's this kind of common misconception that I think has maybe delayed or hindered capital getting into the basin, which is that you can't get the crude out of the basin, but in reality you can. You can truck it out to rail terminals. It's just you got to truck it farther than you would like. Um, so, and, and they're starting to, they're getting approvals for building more rail terminals and rail outlets that'll improve the, the transportation costs even more. Um, but it's really fantastic. You've got companies like XCO and Oventive and uh, the Javelin team out there like drilling really nice wells. 
Yeah, no, yeah. I'm a, I'm I'm blanking, but there used to be, I think, two publicly traded petroglyph, maybe, and something else. And we used to. It seems like we would look at it and pitch it as an acquisition target to somebody, and they'd spend a lot of time, and then ultimately got scared because there were the two refiners in Salt Lake City. Yeah, that refined it. Oh, yeah. they're about full. No, no we can't too bad. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, that's wild to hear. That's wild to hear. All right. Um, give me a really, really cool story about working with a client. And then I'm going to ask you the flip side of it too. Just, just when, when you're celebrating a little too yeah, much, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask you the horror story. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll give you a cool story and I'm going to anonymize this, uh, cause I don't have permission to share the full thing, but, um, we had a client in the Permian who was using our models and our models were saying that. You know, there was a primary zone that they were targeting and our models were saying, hey, the geology of the zone above really matters to your primary zone. And they're like, that doesn't make sense. It's all filled with water. Like, like, why would why would it matter? Yeah. And it just kept showing up in the model results. And then they went and looked at some more of the data and they found, you know, hey, actually, our wells that are drilled near the top of our primary zone are the best wells. Like, that doesn't make sense. Fracks normally grow up and they're growing right. up into more water. Mystery, right? Well, they went back and looked at their data and went back all the way to core and they found, oh, lo and behold, it's, it's not full of water, it's full of oil. Um, and the models had kind of learned that um, just, just by looking at the data and, and seeing these relationships. And so um, after finding that out, this company added in, started targeting that zone specifically and it became some of their most productive inventory. So like huge uplift to their nav from, you know, I don't know, bumping their locations 10 or 15% um, by finding this new zone, like thanks to the models, finding this unexpected kind of insight, if you will. You know, it's interesting that you say is when you look at our track record over funds four, five, six, and seven, generally speaking, we got better over that time and why we got better was not because our best deals got better. They, they kind of stayed the same. It's that our worst deals uh, we spent less money on. So one, we learned to cut bait earlier. Mm -hmm. And two, it was exactly what you were saying, being more just agnostic to whatever and just looking at data and figuring out. Because the thing you forget about the shale revolution is, it was the, I mean, it shouldn't have even worked. Yeah. If, if all the tradition, you know, the traditional beliefs, I mean, it was literally, let's go down there. Let's yeah. I mean, who the, who the hell had the balls to do the first fine mesh sand frack, right? I know, amazing. Now we're just yeah. going to gum up the reservoir. Why are we doing this? Lo and behold, look at how it works. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, I, I like to think about that, you know, the tools that we have for producing conventionals are over a hundred years old. And I think about that a lot for like geological evaluations, you know, we have very well-defined processes and ways of estimating reserves and risk and all that type of stuff that are like super well-defined for conventionals. And then you get to unconventionals and we struggle even just building a physical model that will like replicate more than a single well at a time. And, yeah. and you know, so it's, it's like how much more is out there that we don't know yet, you know? So I think that humility and just, all right, let's just, 
start from the ground up with an open mind is, is only change is one variable. Yeah. <laughs> only change yeah. one variable. Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. Now give us a horror story, man. So we, we have, we have, you call this a recurring nightmare. Uh, okay. Maybe is maybe is what you want to call it. So, you know, we, we've been in business now for um, eight or nine years, I guess. Um, I've been there for four. And so we've worked with, you know, operators and every every major shale play. And two things, two things we hear over and over again. I'll give you some specific examples for each. But like one of them is we'll be in the pre-sales process and they're like super enthusiastic and they are gung-ho and ready to get started and start using this new ML stuff. You know, the board is supportive. Like, yeah. let's go, dude. And we're like, great. So um, once you give us your data, it'll take you know four to six weeks to get to get you know your get, get stuff up and running or whatever it is. You know, and, and this is faster now, but we'd say something like that. They'd be like, "Great, our data is in excellent shape. You'll have it on day two. We're like, fantastic. Right. And then like six months later, still don't have any data. You know, and this is this happens over and over again. That and this is just so much potential there for operators to clean up their act where they they just you know the completions data is is stuck in some database and they don't they don't know where their cluster data is and their production data oh we only have monthlies uh we don't know where the dailies are we lost the data from that from that company that we acquired and like next thing you know we have to end up using our public data because even a big sophisticated operator just like doesn't have their data anywhere so that's part of the reason we have this data offering in the first place second horror story and and yeah. and yeah, no, I I totally believe that yeah. that that it's it's stunning to me that you walk in and there's like a paper ledger with yeah production data. Yeah. You're like, holy cow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, I don't know. Tammy's the only one who knew where that is. She's yeah. gone now. <laughs> She's gone now. No, that's that's exactly yeah. right. I've, I've heard that a million times. Um, the other horror story, uh, and this happens again all the time, is. You know, we'll say they'll say, "Well, how accurate are your models at forecasting production, Ted?" We'll be like, "You know, usually, you know, once we get them fine tuned and everything, you know, for most wells, they'll be, you know, fifteen to twenty percent, like or less, you know, off from what the well production is." And they'll go, Ugh, "That's terrible! Like, how can it be so inaccurate?" We go, "Well, hey, why don't we do a little test here, and we'll um, let's go find uh, you guys did some AFEs back in twenty twenty one, a budget cycle. Like, why don't we take your reservoir engineering?" Uh, pre-drill type curves and just put it to the test. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, we had uh, an operator once who over-forecasted their whole basin production by 50%, you know, for a two-year period. You know, how, how do you think... <laughs> how do you think that impacted their IRRs and yeah. so many wells that didn't, and didn't end up paying out because they had, you know, over-forecasted that badly? And we've seen the opposite too, by the way. Companies that under-forecast all their wells by 30%. And that's because um, maybe they had the opposite cultural pressure where every well should be exceeding your forecast. So nobody wants to, you know, say that a well is going to produce, you know, whatever, 700K barrels and it comes in at 600, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's not surprising. So let's close on, out on this because it is all the buzz these days and, you know, this is wild. We actually at Digital Wildcatters, and we built this internally for our own use. We have an AI-driven search model. 
great. for all of our podcasts, all our presentations at Energy Tech Night, and you know, index stuff. You can literally type in, you know, Colin's face, and it'll pull up Boom. everywhere Colin's face <laughs> is. You, you can, you know, type. So anyway, I have gone in the last nine months from saying Google is the greatest website ever invented to it sucks. I have yeah. to read these articles and all this stuff. So give me AI stuff uh, about, you know, you, and you've, you've kind of through all this talked about what it's done to date. So maybe you can summarize that if you want, but I also want to hear where it's going. Yeah. Well, the biggest developments recently are in these large language models um, that do really good jobs at handling text or there are similar type models that do really great with imagery um, or other kind of visual data. And I think there's a couple pieces of real potential there for the oil and gas space. Um, you know, those, those, those new, you know, chat GPT and all those things, honestly, it actually doesn't affect what we do that much. If you're just forecasting how much a well is going to produce, you don't, you know, it, those aren't really applicable. But there is tremendous potential for digitizing old data. Back to our previous conversation, these models are great at image recognition. And, you know, you got some paper logs that nobody ever scanned that's in the bottom of a filing cabinet, you know, that smells no problem. Yeah. Like just run it through, you know, you can, you can do a much better job of digitizing all that. So this is great. Just yeah. a side note, because it's a funny story, because you're so young. I feel as the old guy in the room, I need to share. Yeah. Um, back in, call it, late 90s, there was a company called A2D, mm -hmm. analog to digital. And yeah. basically, they would digitize paper well logs. And literally, by hand, scanning it to, uh, do you know where the guy found his best employees? Uh, no, where's that? Nail salons. <laughs> The, <laughs> the ladies that did nails were the best at tracing the well wow. logs wow. and had the most uh, Excellent uh, motor control. Excellent yeah. motor control. Fine attention yeah. to detail. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that's fantastic. But that's how we used yeah. to do it back in the late 90s. Hey, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, and then I think the other, you know, you, Google's becoming obsolete to you. I'm finding myself going to chat GPT for a lot of my research questions now at this point as well. And I think you'll see companies, and a lot of them are already going after this, kind of like you guys are doing for all your content, do the same thing for um, their everything that they have across their enterprise, you know, PowerPoint presentations, GIS documents, images, like PDFs, all that type of stuff. And, you know, I remember back in when I was getting started in the industry, there was this whole great crew change, great crew change, you know, it was this whole meme that all the boomers are going to retire and we're going to have to hand the keys over to Gen X and the millennials and like, what are we going to do with all that knowledge being lost? And I think we kind of forgot about that just because we had bigger fish to fry. Like, how do we stay in business? Yeah. You know? Minus $37 <laughs> oil. Yeah. 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 We were happy to do a great crew change because we, you know, it meant we had fewer employees or whatever. <laughs> right. it but uh that that's still a big deal, especially as we have to return to the offshore or return to conventionals for, you know, the next 20 million barrels of production growth globally. Right. And I think these models will play a huge role in that. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's interesting. It's been fun to watch and amazing to watch. And it feels like I know it's, you know, the overnight discovery that's been worked on for 20 some odd years. But yeah. Still, it's been amazing. 
So, Ted, how do people reach you if they want to chat? Yes, a uh, couple different ways. You can find me on LinkedIn, Ted Cross. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Ted Cross, or shoot me a, a message, tcross at novialabs.com for an email. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, Ted, you were cool to come on. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. Really appreciate it. Hey, one thing we didn't talk about, yeah. and I don't know if this even matters, is one of the bigger than I expected variables, maybe that's the way to put it, was actually figuring out artificial lift mm. after the fact. Because yeah. it felt like in the Bakken, fuck, really? The jet pump burned out again? What are we going to do now? We go to a rod pump. Oh, shit. It yeah. just went down 30 barrels a yeah. day. What? Oh, but no. it's going to be flatter. Yeah. Do you see any of that in your data? So, yeah, that's something that we really don't do too much with because the data quality for that stuff is terrible. Like, yeah. It's really terrible. Yeah. So, um, it's hard to find that good quality data publicly. And then it's hard to find it like as a good across the well life. And then companies are like, yeah, we want to do an artificial lift study. We're like, great. Like, let's start next week. And then they give us the data and it's in terrible shape. Yeah. So, there are companies out there who, um, you know, who, who work in that space, but, um, that's, yeah, that's one of the big unknowns to our models that like one day yeah. if we had all that data, it'd be fantastic. And you can probably optimize yeah. a lot more production there. Yeah, no, I, and, and we had a couple of companies, uh, that were really, really good at watching that mm. and documenting it and in effect using human intelligence to kind of, kind of watch it. But even those guys would get surprised. Man, it just looks like at eighteen months it, it it runs out, and we got to go to a rod pump or whatever. And it, yeah, I mean, we had we wound up having, and, and we we drilled a lot of. I don't even think the guys would mind if I mentioned their names because they did a great job. The cracking guys in the Bakken. I mean, yeah. they've drilled as many wells as anybody up yeah, there, great. and they're really smart. They're really good. I mean, we wound up having multiple type curves over time, and it was all artificial lift driven. It wasn't rock it wasn't completion it wasn't any of that it was literally just figuring out yeah where do sure. you change out the pumps so. yeah it's a it's a huge deal definitely ted you were cool to come on yeah my pleasure <laughs> <laughs>